0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, is Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going?
1: I am on day 14 of a self-isolation stint
0: but mm-hmm. I
1: have to stick in for a few more days because mm. of contact with people who were then unwell and I'm totally fine, Ed
0: <laughs> and I
1: didn't weirdly relate to the situation on High Life when I watched it on movie <laughs> the other day at all I am totally fine I am though, I did go a bit wrong
0: <laughs>
1: this, <laughs> this week but the end is in sight I think that's it, you just have the dip and for me I'm fortunate because I'm not in a high risk group that has to shield so in a few days it rolls around and I'm out and it's fine but it has been quite tough. Fortunately uh, Damon Lindelof and crew as part of sort of acknowledgement Recognition Again, I'm not quite sure what the correct term is, but kind of in alignment with Juneteenth, mm-hmm. uh, released Watchmen for the world for free. And I basically, my world has just been Watchmen for the past 24 hours, mm-hmm. which is not a terrible way to spend 24 hours. I have to say, I think it's a magnificent piece of television. It's a shame that it's even more prescient now than when it came out. Yeah, It's a shame that it's prescient at all, but really quite well done. So I'm better for really good telly, funnily enough, Ed. <laughs> Who knew?
0: Yeah, I I loved Watchmen uh, when it aired last year. I think I still have some reservations about it, mainly that I just kind of feel like the ending feels really rushed. It's like they set up a lot of things and then suddenly it's like, oh, the show's over, bye. Um, assuming that they don't do more, which seems to be the, the, seems to be something they're sticking to. Like, I think Lindelof signed up for one season and, you know, didn't seem to have any interest in doing more. But that, that was kind of, like, my only major problem. I just thought it was such... Like Lost or The Leftovers, it's just such good, high-quality, like, fantasy or sci-fi-inflected storytelling. Like, it's pulp on a really big scale that's really emotionally involving, that's also really funny in places, that is visually just, like, so so good. Like, the quality of the effects and everything are really, really strong for for TV. And obviously, like, HBO have really been pushing the boundaries with that sort of stuff with Game of Thrones and everything over the last few years anyway, but it's still really impressive when you watch a, uh, a TV show that has that level of just sheer craft put into it, and also the score's great. Like I still, oh. I mean, I love I love listening to Trent Reznor and Ask Ross scores in general. Anyway, I think they're just two of the the best and most interesting composers currently working. Even though like they kind of don't have a huge amount of variation in their work. Like yeah. there's a there's a particular tone that they aim for, and they hit it. But they they are so good at maintaining that tone. And doing that one trick over and over that I, I haven't got tired of it and I think that there are some there are some tracks on that soundtrack, particularly on the first volume that are just so great and they've reg- they've made their rotation into my regular like running playlist and stuff very, very easily because they're very, very impactful. In terms of what I've been up to culturally, I think probably like the, the main thing that I've been doing over the, last day or so is I've been listening to an album by a Sheffield based chip tune duo called city guys which was sent to me by uh, your friend and mine uh, Simon Jenkins yeah. uh, not the Guardian columnist as he <laughs> as he specifies on his own Twitter but yeah he sent me this this link um, to an album they they put out earlier this year which is a mini album of covers of Bits of the score from Final Fantasy VII, the obviously classic square RPG from the late 90s, but done in the style of um, sort of the, the sounds of the Sega Mega Drive. So, kind of imagining what it would have sounded like if Final Fantasy VII, instead of making the leap to 32 bit, had stayed in the 16 bit era alongside like the previous entries in the series. And it's lovely. I, I think I'll put a bit of it under our conversation right now so people can enjoy uh, some, of the, some of the prelude, which uh, is one of my favourite pieces of music in video games and sounds really nice when done in the 16-bit style. It's just a lovely little nostalgic thing that's really lovingly done. Like, it's clear that they put a lot of uh, time into really capturing the sound of the score, but also this incredibly... Kind of naive and kind of like childish sounding aesthetic that you know that I always associate with that really limited electronic music that you got from 16 bit and 8 bit cards. But yeah, so I've really been enjoying that. It's been like a really lovely thing to have on in the background when I'm puttering about the apartment, which uh, I also am not leaving that often at the moment because cases of coronavirus in Florida are skyrocketing. Yeah, which uh, is not great um, I think this week the record for the most number of cases in a day in Florida was broken four or five times I think um, so not great uh, the, uh, the county that I live in in Florida has now implemented mandatory masks in public although I'm not sure if there's actually going to be a fine associated with it or not so that's good, even though our governor is so far generally unwilling to kind of implement anything stricter and is just kind of it up to the local authorities to try and implement that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's just it's just very, very frustrating. I mean, it's, it's kind of a microcosm of the problem that America has had with the coronavirus, which is that the people in the positions of power don't want to make the hard choice of saying hey, we need to shut down for a long-ish time and everyone needs to wear masks and people shouldn't leave their homes and that's the only way we're going to lick this thing and because they didn't do it early enough, 100,000 people are dead. Not in Florida. In Florida, it's only about 3,000, but that's still a pretty sizable number of people and a number that's going to grow. So, yeah. It's just really fucking annoying. I'm <laughs> just yeah. constantly feeling... Constantly feeling... uh outraged i was on a um i was on a zoom call with some friends a few weeks ago in which they were trying to everyone was kind of like recalling the 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 angriest they've ever seen anyone else on the call because you know we've all been friends for a really really long time and we were trying to think you know what was the angriest and no one could remember ever seeing me being angry and i was like well yeah i don't like get angry i'm just constantly seething all the time which uh is true now as it ever was, mm-hmm. just constant low-level rage at just the dumb fucks who are running the world.
1: <sighs> well...
0: So it's a full week. Full yeah, week
1: it's a full week <laughs> and, and solidarity from um, from the land of vehicle-based eye tests and uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I, I've been following the comedian laurie kilmartin for a while now on oh Twitter. yeah and yeah. it just really hit me how terrible it is on your side ed because i've been talking mm. to other friends of mine across the pond because as much as we have what i will call euphemistically statue defenders in force here and they're very dangerous most of them are still wearing masks um, because mm. they don't bang on about that, in, infringing on their, their freedom. Um, yeah. And Laurie Kilmartin's mother died this week. And I just wanted to sort of put it out there, not that I don't think she listens to us, Ed, as much as as <laughs> <laughs> as much as I appreciate the audience we do have. I don't think Laurie Kilmartin's in there, but I just want to put it out how grateful I am to her kind of giving such detail about what it's like when someone dies. I think not just because of COVID-19 and that we're all kind of reeling about finding out new things about this Mm. all the time and we're aware of these death tolls but there's something about actually explaining what happened? That is a really, I think, is just such an incredible gift to give to people, because mm-hmm. you and I are both in the grieving club, Ed, and yeah. I think it certainly came as a, sh- it, it was added shock to me to sort of learn on the way what what dying and death was like, and mm-hmm. the more that we talk about it, I think the better it is, and it is scary and but I think I think we should re- reframe what being morbid <laughs> means mm-hmm. I think it's awareness, I think it's kindness I think it's being as prepared as we possibly can for the thing that you can never truly be prepared for but just so you can kind of understand oh this is happening and this is happening because everything that Laurie was describing in terms of watching her mother was very similar to me and my mum mm-hmm. You know oxygen levels and and things that you don't know about until you have to but I'd like to change that so really I'm just incredibly grateful to Laurie Kilmartin for letting us into such a painful time but also to to really show the human cost and stress how important it is to wear a fucking mask. (laughs) <laughs> mm. um, but yeah that was something that I thought was um in that very tender human um tragic way very beautiful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I was following her series of tweets about it with uh you know great uh, immense sympathy obviously for what she was going through but it just being immensely impressed with how well she managed to convey oh, yeah. her feelings of, of grief, of anger at the whole situation, of particularly the suddenness of it, because it was literally yeah. like her her mother went into a hospice without COVID, caught it, and then died several days later. Yeah. And being able to kind of like do it with such wit and grace and humor in okay. a way that is like absolutely remarkable like it's hard to imagine being in that situation and being able to kind of write jokes about it that are yeah. both incre- that are really funny but are also you know expressing tremendous fear and pain and doubt and sadness and all this sort of stuff. and you know and trying to reckon as well with the fact that she very clearly didn't see eye to eye with her mother politically yeah. towards the end, and how that all factors into this whole sort of thing as well. Um, yeah, that was, you know, I don't want to say it was like riveting or anything like that because that, that that feels inappropriate, but it definitely was like one of the things that happened on on Twitter this week that I you know couldn't couldn't really shake.
1: Yeah, and I think it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because riveting sounds like it's entertainment, and she's and she's yeah. not. It's it's education. It's her own, it's her own way of. Expressing herself on the stage that she has, and mm-hmm. to do and to do that in real time, and to get across to people how immediate and important this is, and that it's not going away, I think yeah. is the opposite of like showing off or using things for entertainment. And I am a subscriber of Seth Simon's um, and his humorism newsletter, which I cannot recommend more. He talks about humor and I mean in a way that I agree with deeply politically, but he does really incredible investigative journalism holding big comedy people to account whilst also talking about content and
0: mm.
1: and the kind of purposes and motivations for, for comedy as well. and he often um, just uses the sort of famous improv adage of if this is true then what else is true. And I think the amazing thing about Laurie Kilmartin's jokes in particular is that she's not making light of anything. Because I think that's so often what we think is happening with Gallo's humour is kind of taking the edge off it. But what Laurie Kilmartin Mm. did was brought you right to the kind of quick of it and to the core of it. It brought you closer to to the truth and saying, if this is true what else is true? She wasn't sugarcoating it. And nothing becomes kind of you know in like transformed into anything like saintly and the the reality of watching someone you love die through facetime but then also like her Mm -hmm. sort of shouting out to the hospital and then being able to kind of touch her when she was still responsive to touch even given the pandemic Mm -hmm. and these kind of graces so yeah it's it's full of grace what Lee Kilmartin is doing, and I'm just in awe of her.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, there's no good subs- uh, segue from that into the news. None, so. <laughs>
1: none at all. None so, whatsoever. Sorry so about we'll... that, <laughs> that's, everyone. <laughs> that's fine.
0: We'll just jump right into it. This is going to be pretty much all news this episode. Although one of the the, the stories is kind of like you know big enough to be the main topic. So, but but. We'll jump right into it with one of the lighter stories, one of the more unexpected stories, I think, which was the announcement that we are getting a spin-off of Daria, the late 90s, early 2000s MTV animated series, uh, which itself was a spin-off of Beavis and Butthead, which is uh, I th- certainly much beloved amongst, I think, people of our generation. Uh, I certainly know back in 2012 when I was couch surfing for four months or so while I was waiting for my interview at the US Embassy so that I could, you know, come over here and I was like uh, staying with people in Sheffield uh, including the aforementioned Simon Jenkins (laughs) not that one Um, uh, we watched a lot of Daria during the day because it happened to be showing on some, one of the like Freeview channels, it was just constantly showing Daria and just like everyone who was, yeah, you know, like we would watch it and then we would, you know, when we would go out, about when people went out, when we would go out uh, in the evenings and, like, I would talk to you about it, just everyone would be like, oh, yeah, Daria's so fucking good. And everyone was just had this such uh, profound affection for the show. So, in some respects, it's not surprising that they would do a spin off of, of Daria because obviously it was a show that was, like, much beloved uh, for, for a long time. But also, it doesn't feel like something that was in the zeitgeist as much as it was just a thing a lot of people watched and loved but we are getting one it's uh going to be called jody it is about the the character of jody who was the only black female character i think on daria or certainly of the the main cast and it will pick up her life a few years after the end of the original show and its spin-off uh movie which you know kind of had all the characters going off to college, so this picks up with her graduating from college and kind of moving into the world of work. I think they're doing sort of a time jump sort of thing, so it's going to be more, rather than being set in, like, 2004 or 2005, it's going to be set now and be more about Generation Z and things like that, so they're, they're futzing with the timeline a little bit, but in a way that makes sense, because I think it would be really weird if you were to do the, the spin-off and just be kind of like, yeah, it's it's it starts whilst the Iraq War is going on. Like, well, whilst the Iraq War is in the early stages. um, And uh, one of the other things that's really exciting about it is that the character of Jodie will be voiced by Tracy Ellis Ross, who will also be executive producing. And, yeah, it's just a really interesting project that I hadn't considered being a possibility, but as someone who loved Daria and thought it was, like, a wonderful show and I think is something that had a, a voice that was very kind of like perfect for its time. I'm really excited to see that world expanded but with an obviously a very different perspective and also, you know, a whole series of new jokes presumably about TikTok uh, or whatever they want to do about Generation Z. In other animation news, uh, there was some consternation this week when Studio Ghibli released the first images of their first cgi animated movie iron the witch which will be directed by uh goro miyazaki based on earwig and the witch by uh, diana wynne jones who also previously wrote uh, th- who also wrote the novel that house moving castle was uh, based on uh, which will i believe be debuting on japanese tv in later this year and it got a lot of consternation because obviously studio ghibli are renowned for their hand-drawn animation that's kind of you know the thing that distinguishes them even more now that there's so little of it being made in like america which used to be a big producer of a lot of hand-drawn animation and just because particularly because of that clip of Hayao miyazaki doing that always does the rounds on twitter where he someone shows him like C, uh, CGI animation and he calls it an abomination or something you know, I mean, the, there's this real there's this, I think there's this real sense that you know, this is some sort of a betrayal of Studio Ghibli even though Ghibli since I think Princess Mononoke have used a lot of digital stuff for their animation you know it's not all hand coloured anymore because with the amount of frames they use it would be ridiculous so you know, it's a lot of computer coloration and things like that but it it's obviously caused quite a bit of a stir. Uh, you and I have both seen the the images. Emily, what do you what do you think of the images of Iron and the Witch that have so far been released?
1: This might be unpopular ed, but my gut said no. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I feel really uncanny valley about it. Look, I liked the cat because of course I would, but all all the kind of. I'm not sure of the character because I've not read that Diana Wynne-Jones. I only really read, um, is it Christopher Chance? That sounds right. Yeah. I read a couple of those and wasn't massively keen, but I think looking back now, I think it was a lit I was trying to read them a bit too young. I think they're mm-hmm. looking back on it. I'm like, they're actually incredibly interesting, complex books, mainly just coming back to Ghibli. I wasn't keen on who I think are the villains, all the antagonists right. and their hair. don't know. Mm-hmm. Didn't They look wormy. I don't like wormy things, Ed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm kind of in the same boat. I think the first image I saw was of Aya, the little girl. And I thought, oh, it's cute. Like, it looks nice. It looks ghibli esque It looks like it, it works with the 3D. But then you saw some of the other more grotesque characters I think or the more exaggerated characters who have always been a part of the Ghibli aesthetic anyway like they've always kind of you know exaggerated adults to make them kind of look ridiculous and there's something about CGI applied to that which just doesn't feel right yeah it kind of feels weird and off in a way that it doesn't in the hand-drawn animation and like maybe it'll be different if event you know when they eventually release a trailer and you see it all in motion but based on these handful of images it does look i, I wouldn't go so far as to be like oh my god it's a betrayal or whatever i feel it's more like ah oh, you know you've got to move with the times there's plenty of other anime being made in been made in japan that's hand drawn so it's like this isn't like an end of an industry or anything like that it's just seems to be an experiment that they are trying out And time will tell if it's successful. But for me, and you know, obviously, the the Ghibli to Disney comparison is kind of like well worn and trite at this point. But it does remind me of those early Disney CGI animated works, like, you know, Chicken Little, where you watch it and you kind of think, this kind of looks a little plain. This doesn't look as. Exciting visually as it would be if it was hand-drawn. It doesn't look as if there's as much information like everywhere that you could kind of like cram in, because the artists are having to learn a new skill set and to work with the new, you know, an entirely new dimension essentially. So I'm very much in a wait-and-see mode, but also at the same yeah. time, what, what what I've seen so far does not fill me with like a tremendous amount of confidence in this particular project uh but i also i'm not like thinking like oh my god this destroys everything ghibli has ever (laughs) ever worked towards it's kind of like ah you know like everyone deserves an experiment that yeah doesn't quite work
1: we'll forgive them
0: next up you sent me an interview with effie brown which i think was in the hollywood reporter which uh for people who uh, don't know or, or may have forgotten, Effie Brown was a participant in Project Greenlight, the second series of Project Greenlight, which got aired like five years ago at this point, which was the HBO show where Matt Damon and Ben uh, Affleck kind of like mentor filmmakers as they kind of like go through the process of trying to make a film. There was one sequence in it in which Effie Brown was, you know, called out Matt Damon for displaying like bias and racial insensitivity in his discussions with people, which blew up online. A lot of people supported her uh, because that was clearly what was happening. He was clearly in the wrong there. But, as d- detailed in this interview, Effie Brown talked about how she suffered a considerable backlash for this because she spoke truth to power in that instance. A lot of people wouldn't work for, with her for, for quite a while. Eventually she was able to kind of get her feedback under her because uh, she saw uh, Lee Daniels uh, reached out to her and she went to work for him at his company and she now is the CEO of her own company called game changer films which is great but obviously she had to endure you know being ostracized and you know having her position in the industry be threatened quite considerably for for a considerable length of time and The point of the 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 interview was just for me at least you know when i was reading it was thinking it's really good that the reckoning that is occurring for about police brutality towards people of color in the u.s and more generally the conversation about race about the history of white supremacy in the u.s and systemic racism bias and things like that is reverberating outwards and that hopefully you will start to see more repercussions or you know more conversations happening within the film and television industry around this because this absolutely is not like the only case of a Black woman speaking up and being, you know, considered difficult or whatever, and struggling to find work afterwards. Like I'm pretty sure there's thousands upon thousands of cases of this. You know, Effie Brown just happens to be a very high-profile instance of it.
1: It also just happened to be on camera. We yes. have the proof. Like I remember when it came out at the time,
0: and <laughs> just being
1: like, oh, and everyone sort of being Effie Brown in that moment of just going, wow, yeah. And I don't get how and you can almost see Ben Affleck trying to stop Matt from talking. Yeah. <laughs> and when Ben Affleck is thinking you're going too far, you should probably listen to Ben Affleck.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's one of the most painful things I've ever watched in terms of because it it is happening in real time in front of of you. And like mm-hmm. the the most painful epic example that we have of an absolute a lister being racist and mansplaining to yeah. a woman being like optical like essentially saying like optical performative allyship is the only thing we sort of care about or should attend mm. to oh i'm really glad to hear from effie again like yes. that this this um, article and sort of interview that the Hollywood reporter kind of reached out to her or maybe she did to them, I'm not too sure. But I'm glad that this conversation exists and it's well worth reading because she just says over and over again, I could not have done this on my own. Like my spirit was not enough. I needed allies and I needed support and I needed Lee Daniels to basically be like, hey, you know, I'll lift you up. I didn't realise, you know, this is awful. Um, and she is where she is now. But that's after what, like you say, like five years and Matt yeah. Damon is earning how much? And <laughs> I don't think cancel culture happen because it's, it's again, this idea that, like, oh, they're cancelled, they'll never work again, and then, like, eight months later... It wasn't even that for Matt Damon. I think people... I'm not even sure what really happened. I can't even remember, which goes to show how significant it was in terms of his apology or any kind of remorse <laughs> at all. Yeah.
0: He just went back to, you know, he made another born movie that no one liked and then <coughs> kept kept on trucking. Although I can't think about what the last thing he was in was. Suburbicon, maybe?
1: Oh, what a wild hit that was. <laughs> I think it was, actually, you know.
0: He had a very bad run of, you know, of movies because, like, even, like, just not setting aside the quality of the movies because I know a lot of people will uh, kind of, like, uh, stump for downsizing as kind of, like, this weird, like... Massive or tourist um, attempts, you know, to kind of tell a strange story with a huge budget, but like that was a huge flop. The Monuments Men, I think, was not a particular hit. Uh, certainly not critically. Yeah, he's just had a really bad run of of projects. You know, not really picking stuff that hits. Oh. I Feel like the last successful movie he was in probably would have been, you know, the the terrible third of Interstellar that he's in.
1: Oh yeah, when was the Martian as well?
0: Oh, to 20, That would have been twenty fifteen. So yeah, that that maybe got that maybe would have been under the under the line of, uh, you know, before everything went bad for him.
1: Stop rescuing Matt Damon. Just leave him in places. Let him figure it out for himself. Give him time to think. He needs it.
0: Mm. Yeah, I was surprised he didn't show up in High Life. That just seems to be <laughs> the thing that like every time you make a space movie, it's like yeah, we got like like yeah, whenever they would talk about how. Uh, if a project filmed at a Trump uh, property, they would have to write a scene to have Trump in. You know, it's like, anytime time you have a space movie, it's like, find oh, find find room for Matt in there.
1: Yeah, Matt, Matt Damon's got the Milky Way written into his contract. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's, uh, the, he's the one that Juliette Binoche is thinking about when she's in the box.
0: Right, yeah. Obviously. Makes sense. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh,
1: I'll,
0: our next story uh, is one that I completely passed me by until I was looking at the stories for this week, was the story that a sketch from With Bob and David, which was the sort of sequel to Mr. Show that Netflix put out a few years ago, which was, okay, there's some good sketches in there, but it was very much kind of like a, certainly for me, kind of like a, oh, it's nice seeing all these people back together again. Mm. Uh, but not not necessarily being kind of something that set the world alight. Uh, it was announced that Netflix were pulling one of the sketches from the series because it features blackface. And when I read that story, I was like, I don't remember a sketch that features yeah. anyone in blackface. I remember a sketch about um, like Saudi Arabians, which was wildly offensive, but mm-hmm. um, I don't. I didn't remember anything about blackface. So I. Read the story further, and they said it's from one called "Know Your Rights," which I do remember. In fact, I think I I remember thinking was one of the funniest sketches where David Cross plays like a libertarian, sovereign citizen type of guy who is talking to his dashboard camera and talking about you know being harassed by the police and how telling people to like know their rights if they're ever kind of accosted in you know the normal course of their everyday, and so he keeps pulling up to a a traffic situation or whatever or or roadworks where the police are stopping people and a policeman played by keegan michael key comes over to him and just basically very politely asks him to see his uh license and registration because he wanted to do a quick sobriety test because he saw that he was swerving in the world road because he was messing with his camera and then he just waves him on and then the david cross character gets very disappointed because he was like oh that was actually a very pleasant interaction and no rights were violated so he just keeps circling around the block constantly trying to think of ways to in to encourage the police to harass him in some way and the end of the sketch has him putting on blackface and pulling up to it and in my mem, like when i read the description of the sketch you know in the av club right above it i kind of thought all right so like it was you know kind of drawing out the satirical point that, you know, these white libertarian sovereign citizen types are always talking about how the government is restricting their freedoms and all this sort of stuff, and how, you know, having to stop at police cordons is an infringement of your right, or how I don't know, seatbelts are an infringement on your freedom are all making it up, essentially. They're just kind of like completely exaggerating all these things, whereas actual minorities in in America are the victims of, vi- of state violence just for being black or latino or anything but then i re the sketch and it's like oh no he just pulls up he has blackface on immediately they recognize him and they're just kind of like what the fuck are you doing and then they just mace him because he's being annoying and it's a kind of a subtle shift between those two things but i do feel like that takes it from on the one hand a sketch that's very much about police bias systemic racism and one where you just had David Cross put on blackface because it's a shocking thing. Yeah. And that is... It's a very fine line to tread, and it's not the sort of thing that necessarily you would want to have to kind of, like, argue in defence of, because, you know, it's it's very hard to defend any instance of blackface, no matter how well it's couched. But at the end of the day, like, you know, David Cross and Bob Odenkirk's defences on Twitter were trying to say, you know, like, people have missed the point of this you know if they're taking it down whereas like you what I've rewatched the sketch though, so, you kind of missed the mark on what you were going for and yeah. there's not there's not a particularly strong qualitative argument for, for leaving the sketch up there if it features if it features blackface
1: totally I completely forgot about it as well myself Ed but when with Bob and David came out and I remember it being kind of quite early on when I first got my own Netflix account it's quite it was kind of in that trend of people being like, oh my God, Netflix is here. This means that everything that got canceled or we want more of will come back. Um, mm. And I remember that excitement of like, well, I love Mr. Show, which I'm now yeah. terrified to rewatch. But again, I was like, okay, this isn't like amazing. The first sketch is a, is a banger. And then it's kind of patchy throughout. And it's a bit, this kind of like everything interweaving and that sort of real Monty Python, Mr. Show style. of of not necessarily having punchlines but kind of this very intricate things leading out of one sketch and going into another and callbacks and all this kind of stuff and I don't think I paid that much attention to it I feel like I Mm. that's me trying to explain this away to myself maybe I did and maybe I just thought oh well it's not particularly funny but I didn't get outraged by it because comedy in the west by a certain set of white men has a huge blackface problem it really Mm. does um, and I think irony is a very, very fine line. And if you're putting blackface on, I think that line becomes a lot bolder. And it's hard to argue that it's a fine line <laughs> that, that, yeah. that you're that you're on the right side of that line, um, because it should be evident to you as soon as you start. I just oh, lacking. I just oh. But there's another part of um with bob and david that i think about a lot and it's in the documentary at the end which i actually found the most compelling bit of the whole series is the kind of behind Mm. the scenes making of and uh paget brewster is is guest starring and she's reading this script and it's just the way that she looks at them with a this incredulity where she's like reading the lines at a table read and they're all kind of like falling about and she's just like, yes, I'm a silly old flapper. I just flap about. And I'm like, yeah, there's definitely more than a streak of sort of misogyny to that if that's the response that you're getting from the woman you're asking to play this, which she does with aplomb and I think manages to bring... But it's on her that she manages to make it like incredibly silly rather than, yeah, just sort of mean.
0: Mm. And I think
1: any... (laughs) any white guy in a room full of white guys writing comedy really isn't the one to say (laughs) um, who's missing the point and what point they were making because I think you Mm. can make a better point by having better representation in your writer's room for a start, mate.
0: Yeah, or just a better punchline. Yeah.
1: No. Uh, just just one punchline, guys. Even one. Like, is there a punchline <laughs> in any... Like, don't get me wrong, I love Mr. Show, but other than and scene, is there one?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of... Yeah, and scene feels like the the best one. Although I, I feel... I can't remember the sketch in detail, but I feel like pre-taped call-in show has a strong ending.
1: Yes, and I guess peppermint speaking
0: <laughs> is mm-hmm. is
1: sort of... I don't know. Bob Odenkirk, David Cross, Punchline Challenge, twenty twenty.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, the, it's more like the punchline will come at the very end of the episode, as opposed to the yeah. end of the sketch. It's
1: quite a lead.
0: Um, before we get into the main topic for this week, uh, I just wanted to say a few words about Ian Holm, who passed away this week at the age of eighty-eight. There's been no official cause of death, death listed that I could see, but I know that he had he suffered from uh, Parkinson's, uh, like towards the end of his life. So presumably. It was uh, related to that. Uh, I'm sure most people will know him for, but yeah, well, certainly the most popular movie he was ever in was the the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, where he played Bilbo in the first and third movie, in which he was uh, pretty much the perfect Bilbo Baggins. I think certainly he like really embodied the kind of like impishness of the older Bilbo. I I certainly think that he did wonders with the. Uh, the speech that he gives at the party where he kind of engages in these like weird linguistic games which even on the page are a little hard to follow but he manages to make them work but also uh, apart from that you know he's great as Ash in Alien like certainly a performance that had a huge impact on me as a kid I remember watching Alien for the first time and when it was spoilers for a 40 something year old movie when it was revealed that he was an android and yeah. you know he just starts getting covered in all of that white milky blood uh was a hugely shocking thing for me in a movie that's already pretty scary um that sequence you know really uh stood out to me as a as a kid though i think the movie that first introduced me to him and which you know i i think of most whenever i think of him was his uh performance as a uh, cornelius in the fifth element a movie that i watched a lot on television because it always seemed to be airing on channel four but uh, i always really enjoyed him i always thought he was incredibly funny in that movie as you know the slightly bumbling priest who's trying to save the world (laughs) uh save the universe in fact and he was just in everything else that i saw of him subsequently from that you know like him in the suites hereafter where he's giving an absolutely incredible performance or uh brazil or uh time bandits one of the many times he played napoleon um he was always just so wonderful he's definitely he was so, so, so clearly one of those actors who elevated every role that he was given who really committed to whatever he was doing and really seemed game for pretty much Anything, including a quite literally game uh, in 2014 when he came back to the Alien franchise to play Ash in Alien Isolation, which he also uh, did motion capture for. So even uh, in his later years, kind of someone who was willing to try new things and it was just, you know, a wonderful uh, presence in pretty much anything he appeared in.
1: Including Big Night, which I watched in honour of him mm. that I hadn't seen before, And I really appreciate for being quite melancholic. And he is just this absolute kind of firecracker the whole way through it.
0: Uh, And also good in a movie that I saw for the first time last year, Robin and Marion. Oh, God, what's his name? Richard Lester. A movie about, you know, an older Robin Hood played by uh, Sean Connery uh, with Audrey Hepburn, in which uh, Ian Holm plays King John and... Is a really fun villain in that you know, or or as it being really funny as kind of someone who is a little disinterested in everything that's going on around him, who kind of feels like, why are we still doing this? Yeah, we're all old. Why are we all still like having adventures and gallivanting? Why can't we all just settle down? Um, Which is uh, that movie's like tremendous, a really really funny melancholy movie, and he's he's great in it. Um, But I think you could probably say that about. Any movie that he was in, that he was great in it, even in something like Garden State, which is not very good, he's fantastic as uh, Zach Braff's dad. He
1: is the best thing in that whole film. Let's be yeah. honest. Maybe the soundtrack as well.
0: It will change your life. It will change. So I heard. Your life.
1: how old was Florence Pugh when that came out? about 8 anyway, moving on
0: (laughs) so we'll go on to our main topic this week and again, as I said earlier it's very much in the news but it feels like a bigger topic because it's something that uh, we're all going to have to be contending with in the coming weeks Uh, all of us who love to see films and love to go out to see films we have to contend with the fact that cinemas are planning to reopen and That seems bad. That seems like a bad idea. Specifically this week, uh, I think it's worth talking about it because AMC, the largest cinema chain in the US, announced that they have plans to open 450 of their theatres starting on July 15th, and they hope to open the rest by the end of July Uh, they've talked about how they're going to be reconfiguring seating so that you know they're not at full capacity and people won't be sat next to each other there are going to be new cleaning procedures there's going to be hand sanitizers everywhere they're encouraging cashless and cash-free concessions they're scheduling things that move so that multiple movies won't be going on at the same time so that you know you don't get a crash of a crush of people waiting to go in and things like that and that's all Well and good, those seem to be the right steps to be taking. However, there was uh, something of a kerfuffle this week because the CEO of the company, Adam Arons, said that they would not be enforcing uh, face masks because they didn't want to get into a political controversy. Um, Because obviously over here in the US, face mask wearing has become this culture war bullshit where you know, Trump says that he's not gonna wear a mask and he doesn't think that they're important, so a lot of his supporters don't wear masks and it's become this whole symbol of like toxic masculinity and all this sort of bollocks. And so and that was his initial thing was saying, like we're not gonna force people to wear face masks if, for example, you live in an area where face masks are required, we will comply with local governance. So for example, in like the area I live in, probably would be forced to wear a face mask because they're mandatory in all public spaces now but that's kind of not enough because that doesn't that still leaves people unprotected in those areas where it's not being enforced so after a few days of furious backlash well earned furious backlash uh, he then came out and said actually no we're going to have mandatory it's going to be mandatory in all our locations we will provide guests with masks if they don't have them which again is good, that's the right thing to do, but it's just not the right time, guys. It's not the time.
1: Oh I mean I feel like every subject we're discussing at the moment, Ed, could just be XYZ are at it again. They're at it again. In the U- mm. in the UK, Cineworld and Picture House are finally coming out in terms of what measures they're gonna be taking, having announced a few months ago that they were even can be a few you know how to time um but <laughs> after announcing that they were go- planning to reopen around about july time they've now confirmed that and they've come out with what they're going to do and it's just not going to be enough i mean you're right it's not the time because even with social distancing high risk of transmission is in enclosed spaces for long periods of time and the mm. main thing that we love about cinema is being in an enclosed space for a prolonged period of time but that's not that's something that we just have to forsake and the fact that Christopher Nolan isn't doing anything in term and, and Mulan and, and stuff that's still coming out I'm like wh- I mean I need to fact check whether Mulan is still coming out but I think that was on the list yeah. somewhere
0: it is. It, it. It, in the article I was reading about AMC's reopening plans, they did say that they hoped to be back to their full 600-something theatres by the time that Mulan comes out on July 24th. Oh. I think that's the day they're aiming for.
1: Guys, no. It's just... Oh, Sorry, it's just more noises than any kind of accurate critique that's reasoned because in the face of something that is just so wildly unnecessary like I will be in the cinema like a shot when it is safe for myself mm-hmm. and everyone else that I'm with like I am 90% sure I've had covid-19 ed but in a different way like I didn't have respiratory symptoms I've heard it from other people they must have had it because there's no way that I couldn't 've had mm. it and and this is why I'm spending loads of time inside, and even though it is uh, sort of shaving away at my brain, fine, <laughs> that's what I have to do because that's what's responsible because I don't want to be a disease vector. <laughs> Thanks very much yeah. And these are the kind of, and again, temporary sacrifices we have to make, because if you and it's the, the, the short-termism issue. That industries have, and that a lot of them have been forced to model themselves on, because even if it takes what, even from now Ed, two years to create a vaccine, and for everyone, mm. everyone on the planet to access it, and for travel and you know, all this kind of stuff to happen, two years is still actually not a huge amount of time, particularly in business. Yeah, and that there's just this kind of rapid, like, oh no, we have to do it now. Is it what for kind of shareholders and prediction of markets and it's all just now are you open now or not and I'm like but that's ridiculous because surely that should actually in a in an economic system that ran on what was good and beneficial for the majority surely that would mean that you're doing something incredibly reckless and therefore you're not a viable investment but mm. apparently not Ed. Oh
0: God. Yeah. Well, I can't. I can't speak for the financial circumstances of all the companies that are considering reopening. This also includes uh, Cineworld World and House in the U. In the UK, who are also like like you said, they're all aiming for like the similar sort of late July period to reopen with tenant. Obviously, great. <laughs> um, ironic that, uh, that, that a Christopher Nolan movie might result in the deaths of many husbands, <laughs> considering his, uh, his predilections. But with AMC in particular, I was reading up on this earlier, they are in a real bind because over the last four or five years or so, they've invested really heavily in redoing the interiors of all their theatres, like... They've have they have fewer seats than they used to, but they're nicer seats. you know they all recline. They all have you know kind of like tables so you can put your, your food on. They're all very they're all very, very nice. Like the average quality of an AMC theater, at least based on my experience of the, the, the handful that I go to back when I used to go see movies, is that they're just really nice plush places to go and see a movie. And in order to do that in all of their theatres, they have taken on a huge amount of debt. They have about $5 billion in debt currently. And they had to take on extra loans to kind of you know keep them solvent whilst they were closed during the, the early days of the pandemic in the US. And so now they are faced with a situation where if they don't open and they don't start getting people back in, they run the risk of being bankrupted completely because they have such an unsustainable amount of debt and they were kind of relying upon the quality of their theatres and the sheer number of big movies that were going to be coming out to... You know, coax people out of their homes away from Netflix and things like that, you know, to have like a really worthwhile cinematic experience. You know, if you're paying $12 or whatever to see a movie, you get to see it in a nice screen and, you know, on a nice seat and just generally have a, a, a little bit of luxury whilst you're watching Watch your a movie. movie. And that's now gone, so they can't do that. But also, reopening is kind of ri- is, is risky in itself. Obviously, the health side of things is, is terrible, but. They are going to suffer really badly if they open, people don't go, because we're all rightly worried about the the impact of going to a cinema and being in close proximity, even with social distancing, being relative close proximity to strangers for two plus hours. Mm. And then they don't recoup enough to just keep up their basic operating costs, let alone kind of deal with, you know, kind of help paying off any of the debt they were going to incur. So they, you know, the the pandemic. There was probably never a good time for a pandemic to hit, uh, honestly, but for them in particular, like, it really does seem like this was a particularly awful moment for it to hit them, and particularly because, like, over the last couple of years, they've absorbed a lot of smaller chains, you know, they didn't used to be as big as they are now, so they've they've kind of, in some some respects, they've fucked themselves over a little bit by their avarice, which, you know, is something that happens to a lot of people in, yeah. uh, in yeah. capitalist systems, but it is th- this is kind of very much them being you know kind of completely blindsided by this at a point of, at a time when they really were not prepared for it and not financially able to sustain this kind of a blow so i do have sympathy for them in that they have been put into kind of an Im- an impossible situation and there isn't really anyone they can like reach out to to save them Yay. but at the same time I still kind of feel like yeah even if yeah like the noble thing to do is just not to open at all and to just keep those cinemas closed until a point at which the either the virus subsides to a level like you know you see in somewhere like new zealand or south korea where the cases have really plunged and people can more or less resume normal life with you know taking precautions and trying to be careful. Or there's a vaccine and enough people have it that you know that you can do it safely. Like you don't do it when cases U.S. wide have plateaued in specific states like Florida or Texas or Arizona where they are going up through the roof. Where they're going up, you you absolutely should not be opening in those situations. Like you know maybe a smaller, more targeted opening plan which you know financially probably wouldn't be great for them but at the very least would make sense like if you are reopen in a state like montana which hasn't seen many cases then you know cool go for it you know that that seems like an acceptable risk but not uh, not most of the places
1: mm. it's really difficult to know what to do other than if they're going to insist that we're in a free market use your choice and don't go i implore you all like i don't think Mm. it's worth going to see tenet on the big screen anyway let alone risking your life and others (laughs) to go and do it so there is so much content online if you're really that invested in cineworld and picture house buy a membership (laughs) to support them I would I would argue that you should support your independent your local independent cinema and buy a membership um, because that kind of mm-hmm. stuff is really keeping keeping them afloat and you know I, I don't think anyone should really be thinking about opening like yes like go go by the numbers but even sort of chatting about October and the thing that is quite satisfying though is that from my position in Scotland the only picture house cinema that's not allowed to open is the Cameo because Scotland says no. Uh, yeah,
0: devolution. It works.
1: You know what? It does, and, and maybe a bit more could possibly work. <laughs> mm-hmm. I won't say too much more to that, Ed, but I'm reconsidering things. I'll, I'll say that, and I'm sure a lot of people are massively in terms of performance, if nothing else. Pals, there's plenty else that we can be doing. Don't go to the cinema. I never thought I'd say this, but unprecedented times and all that. They, yep. they don't yep. have your best interests at heart it was uh, questionable in terms of like cinema world hiring practices you know the unlimited card is sort of a good deal but you know then your viewing experience and access to culture is not what they have in mind doing this
0: yeah as uh, i agree totally as someone who loves going out to the movies loves the theatrical experience loves going to see films with a crowd you just don't it's just not right. It's it's dangerous. It's uh you know you're putting yourself and others at risk, and there's no kind of uh, yeah there's no there's no reason to be doing it. No reason to be put, putting yourself in harm's way like that. Also, you mentioning Tenet as well. I think it raises an interesting question that I've seen a few film critics kind of trying to be trying to grapple with online recently. Is like, is it a moral imperative that they refuse to review it? Because
1: interesting if
0: if they review it and it's good then do they also then have to say in their in their reviews please do not go see this because a positive review of tenet at a time when cinemas are reopening and amid you know pandemic and going out is genuinely a risk that constitutes you like in a very small way but a, a so a, a fairly direct way, potentially contributing to people dying. So yeah, th- I, it's it's an interesting moral question, I think there like do reviewers just say, sorry, we we won't review it because we don't think it's ethical for you to be opening and making this movie available.
1: We're, we're in a an interesting particularly interesting time for film criticism, I think, and it reminds me of a review of Russian doll. Um, mm. The author of whom completely escapes me, but did the real solid of being like I would enjoy this a lot more if Dave Becky weren't an executive producer on it. Um, Louis C.K.'s manager, who I believe is still uh, is Amy Polar's, You know, she's still being repped by him. Um, mm-hmm. John Mulaney, let him go. The the one <laughs> our our paradigm of a good white man, John Mulaney. <laughs> We've got one for the time being. You know, and I and I think that's that article is amazing because it balances kind of the work of people who obviously don't have anything to do with Dave Becky, in terms of mm. a lot of people who are, you know, below the line um, and appreciate kind of what the art is trying to say, but at the same time be like, but we don't, these things don't exist in a vacuum. And particularly given what Russian dollars is about, this is, it'll be disappointing anyway, but it's particularly disappointing here. So I'd say to critics, if you know, if you have to get the money, Obviously, we're all trying to survive, like review it. But yeah, don't, for the love of God, VOD is a thing. And I think it would be mm. really amazing to see more. I know it's not the only option, but for the meantime, what what's wrong with like a drive-in cinema? I know mm. there's a lot to kind of consider, but, you know, if you do have, and I, I'm not sure like how a digital projector would necessarily work, outside and it's summer and like but you know there's no looking into alternatives and like you say financially there's probably not the investment in there but that's such a huge amount of debt to be in and any kind of leap like that that isn't actually going to give you a return let alone a pandemic what if people just you know stop turning up (laughs) um oh yeah this is this is major flumped from me Ed. (laughs) <laughs> I think I'm at peak flumped but maybe I just need to go outside which I will be able to in a few days time
0: but not into a cinema oh
1: hell no <laughs> park, I will go to a park and I will reenact swimming to Cambodia by myself if I have to
0: <laughs> so we end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot Verse Shot Recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well uh, I'll I'll kick us off I'm going to recommend uh, two things. Uh, One is a TV series that airs in the US on Hulu. I'm not sure about worldwide, but certainly in the US on Hulu, called Rami, which is a series by Rami Youssef, uh, who's a stand-up comedian, uh, I think based out of New York. In it, he plays kind of a fictionalized version of himself as a sort of young 20-something Muslim American man living in New Jersey and it's an incredibly funny show that is also incredibly Muslim in a way where it's not like one of those shows where oh we're making a show about the blank experience and it's kind of like the most kind of palatable version to uh, white audiences it's very much kind of upfront you know the first thing is him Going to a mosque and then kind of getting impatient, waiting to go for, through the, uh, the, the the kind of like the washing uh, at the beginning, and then kind of going to a separate shower, and then someone accosting him for being like for washing his socks instead of his feet and things like that. So it's like very much rooted in the Muslim American experience. It's not something that's trying to be like where that's just kind of like window dressing it's very integral to the story that's being told on the show about this like young guy trying to navigate you know trying to be a good Muslim and kind of dealing with the pressures of his parents and his family and his friends but also you know living in New Jersey working in New York of having you know these distinctly non-muslim influences on his life and it's really really funny it's really uh he's got a great cast uh rami himself is very very funny uh the second series which i haven't got to yet is star- uh, co-stars Mahersha ali his casting was like the main thing that made me want to finally watch it um but i haven't got to that point yet i'm still in the first series but the first series is really really strong really good and uh, well worth checking out the other thing i recommend is. Uh, on youtube i watched an episode of tim heidecker's office hours which is his kind of like live podcast radio call-in show that he does every wednesday and this week his guest was limmy
1: oh no way
0: and it's a lovely limmy shows up in like the second half of the show so if people want to just kind of like skip to there and avoid the other calls but uh office hours is a fun show anyway where you know Tim talks to people who call in and kind of like bullshits with them and it's really funny and his uh, the people in the studio of him keep messing with him by playing like weird songs and sound effects to distract him but it's a really fun energetic show but the the, the thing about it that is great is seeing Tim Heidecker talk to Limmy and them, obviously having a similar um, comic sensibility and Limmy saying in particular that he watched a lot of Tim and Eric whilst making the second series of Limmy's show and you know kind of being really influenced by that making the second series and it's just they're just two wonderfully funny people having like an interesting conversation that kind of wends and weaves in all sorts of different directions and it's a real fun time seeing those guys kind of just kind of like chat and make each other laugh so well worth your time uh, i'll put a link to that in the description uh, yeah, so that's that's uh, Limmy on Office Hours with Tim Heidecker, and also uh, Rami, which is on Hulu.
1: Oh, that sounds amazing, Ed. I am just going to give another shout out for Seth Simon's newsletter, which I mentioned, Humorism. Um, it's Substack, and I think there's a very small selection of public posts available for free, but it's also incredibly reasonable um, monthly. It's also incredibly reasonable monthly plan for subscription as well and I think if you're interested in comedy it's an absolute must but also if you're just interested in kind of like the wider perspective of sort of culture and entertainment labor practices it is so engaging and well-researched and Seth is just across everything so that's humorism from Seth Simons
0: great if you enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, rate us, us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And goodbye from me. Stay the fuck at home, guys. Seriously.